Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Welcome to Read Smart, the official podcast for the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. With the date of the winner of Winners Award, which will go to the best of the prize's previous recipient growing ever closer, I am speaking to the shortlisted authors about what the prize means to them and, of course, about the substance of the books that they have written. Today I'm joined by James Shapiro, author of 1599, A Year in the Life of William Shakespeare, which won the prize in 2006. The book explores a pivotal time in Shakespeare's career in which he wrote four incredible plays, including possibly his most famous, Hamlet. James Shapiro, thank you so much for joining us. I think from New York. Are we speaking to you from New York? Thank you so much for being with us. Let's start by talking about the year and what was happening in Shakespeare's world in 1599, a, a year when art and politics collided to an extraordinary degree. Talk us through what was happening. It was an eventful year. I suppose for everyone, every year seems to be eventful, but looking back, this seems to be an extraordinarily complex one. On the political and foreign front, the Elizabethans were sending off an army 16,000 strong to crush an Irish rebellion. They were fearing yet another armada threat from Spain, an invasion that would destroy the country and turn it Catholic. They were establishing the East India Company, which would transform England's place in the world globally, and with Queen Elizabeth aging and childless and unmarried, they were waiting to see who would succeed her. So these are really Fort Elizabethans, quite traumatic experiences, and one of the things that I was trying to do in 1599 was to look at the ways in which Shakespeare used his plays, used his theater as a site for engaging the issues that people cared about and were anxious about. You state it very clearly at the beginning of the book. You say it's no more possible to talk about Shakespeare's plays independently of his age than it is to grasp what his society went through without the benefits of Shakespeare's insights. And in that respect, it feels to me that you are upending what we thought about Shakespeare before that. When you look at what Coleridge said, you know, Shakespeare wrote as if of another planet. Johnson said he was not of an age, but for all time. And and you are, you're doing something quite different by choosing this one year, or, or perhaps the year chose you. I chose this year in 1987, uh, must be 15, 17 years before the book was finally written. That's incredible. And I I would go annually to the Shakespeare Association of America meeting, and I had to give a talk on Henry V. It's very un unusual for a young scholar to be invited to give a talk, so it was a huge honor. And I ran the talk a week before I was to give it, uh, uh, I ran it before a friend of mine, David Castan, who was a mentor and a colleague, and I was excited to hear his response as I read it aloud. 
when I finished, he told me, you're going to embarrass yourself if you give this talk. It's terrible. And he's always been blunt with me and straight with me. And he said, look, you only have a week. Here are a couple of details. There was a, a fake armada in, in 1599, and there was a, uh, an attempt to crush an Irish rebellion. Go do something with that. Uh, do something better than what you did. And I knew nothing about this. Like most Shakespeareans, I wasn't all that interested in what was going on outside of London and uh, outside of the playhouses. And I got the bug. I realized I knew almost nothing that I needed to know about a playwright who was so engaged with the social and the economic and the political uh, crises of his time. And it set me in motion. And the next year, I... Um, the next year, I, I led a seminar where I invited 15 scholars each to write a paper and submit it on the year 1599. And I was thrilled. And I was quite young at the time, in my late 30s. And I applied for grants, fellowships from the National Humanities, National, NEH, National Endowment for the Humanities in the States. And I got a written report saying, it's a terrible idea. There's no book here. And I... I made it a little bit better, and I tried again the following year, and I, I, w I received the same response. So I decided to spend as long as it took to read everything published in that year to find out everything I could from what the weather was uh, every day that year to what people were writing in the very few diaries that survived to anything that would illuminate Shakespeare's plays. Because in, in many ways, Shakespeare himself is very hard to spot except in the shadows and the reflected light of what's going on around him. And I thought if I found out enough, I'd be able to put together a book that uh, would change the way we think about Shakespeare as an artist. Uh, and, and that is exactly what your book has achieved. I mean, that sentence in, in that last answer that you just gave, that you read everything that you could, you also read everything that Shakespeare might have read. I did, and I spent more time on what he likely read, probably, than on other sources. But I was also interested and became interested in looking beyond what literary scholars like myself usually look at, which is sources. What's the source play behind Henry V, or what in Holland Shed was Shakespeare reading, or what in Plutarch's lives? I realized that Shakespeare walking through the streets of London, or a, going to Richmond Palace to perform before the Queen, would be in contact with other kinds of performances, like sermons, like sermons by Lancelot Andrews, the greatest preacher of the age, the kind of Shakespeare of the pulpit, if you will. And it turned out that they were both in the same place at the same time. So I was able to make connections that expanded my sense of what constitutes a source for Shakespeare, what he might have seen or heard or uh, come into contact with. You, you've outlined uh, brilliantly the context uh, that you wanted to explore, but the relationship between the text and context is is really the heart of heart of your book. And, and in 1598, he'd written The Merry Wives of Windsor, he'd written Richard II, and then gone on to write these extraordinary plays, Henry V, Julius Caesar, As You Like It, and of course, Hamlet. 
it, it, was that the thing that interested you as well? How he had gone from writing, not in any way bad plays, but to have gone from writing those plays to the four that he wrote in 1599? That's a great question. And there are a couple of ways of, of going at it. It's interesting, and it's always been interesting to scholars, the great Sir Frank Kermode said 1599 was a turning point. But it's one thing to, to feel that, to sense it. It's another to try to explain why that might be the case. And in this book, I try to both establish a kind of larger political and social context for the plays, but also talk about Shakespeare as, if you will, a practicing writer and a practicing person in the theater. And the other strand of this book, besides the larger political one, is what happens to a young, youngish playwright and actor and shareholder in his theater company, the Chamberlain's Men, when they lose their acting space, uh, a theater built in 1576, unimaginatively called The Theater in London. And they were temporarily playing down the road a little bit in, uh, in Shoreditch at the Curtain. And they had to find a new place to play or he would be back in working in a kind of freelance gig economy of uh, the Elizabethan era. And this put tremendous pressure on Shakespeare and his company so that the book begins with a scene in which taking the props from the storeroom at the curtain, you know, the, the halberds and the swords, and going on Christmas when they knew their landlord with whom they were fighting was out of town, going to the theater, protecting a dozen or so carpenters on that chilly December day of 1598, and dismantling it, uh, drawing a crowd, drawing opposition, but... Uh, not getting into uh, a physical confrontation and dismantling that building, 700 pounds of oak timber, which was invaluable uh, at a time when all the oak around London had been cut down and you had to import Baltic fir to build structures and that just wasn't going to last as long as oak. And they transported it across the Thames and... Uh, the following spring after Thaw, rebuilt that structure as the Globe Theater in the backyard of their main rivals, the Admiral's Men, playing at the Rose Theater. So Shakespeare and his uh, fellow shareholders in the company and fellow owners of the theater, because Shakespeare was now part owner of a theater, had to make good on that. They had uh, invested a tremendous amount in the success of this and uh, I'm sure his fellow shareholders, a half dozen or so men in his company who acted alongside of him, uh, said, give us some good plays because if this doesn't work, uh, we're out of luck. And Shakespeare rose to that occasion. So it's, it's a personal story of uh, a great writer shifting into an even higher gear and uh, responding to his cultural moment. It, it, it is interesting how we see, we kind of idealize uh, Shakespeare's England in all kinds of different ways in our imagination. And, and yet you are very clearly saying that this was an age of, of real anxiety and Shakespeare understood 
that anxiety. G- give us an example of how he attempted in in the text of, say, I don't know, say Henry V. I want to talk about Hamlet separately. You know how he breaks that illusion between the past and the and the present. Well, I'll give one tiny bit from Hamlet simply because it jumps to mind, and that is the opening scene when men are preparing against invasion. And it's a scene often enough caught in productions of the play. But if you were in England in 1599, in the summer of 1599, anticipating uh, another Spanish armada landing on the shores, an opening scene in which men are standing guard against invasion would have been extremely, extremely real and vivid. So, yes, that is not set in England. The play is set in Scandinavia in a different time as well. But that's the kind of thing that Shakespeare would do to give an edge to his plays. And going back to 1599, the play has uh, often been taught since World War I, either as an anti-war play or, say, in the wake of the Falklands, uh, a patriotic celebration of war. The arrow goes back and forth between anti-war and pro-war. And one of the things that I learned while writing the book is it's a play about going to war since at the time it was being staged in London, the Earl of Essex had led thousands of Elizabethan men over to Ireland, poorly equipped and inadequately prepared to confront uh, Tyrone's uh, forces. Shakespeare's writing a play that is fully alert to the problem of trying to go to war in another country. And those ambivalences animate the play and make it a play not as necessarily pro-war or anti-war, but about a nation going to war. And that was, learning all that was, was thrilling for me. Learning all of this was thrilling for me because I knew nothing about Ireland when I began. I knew nothing about the East India Company. I knew just a little bit about the theater history and the, the Shakespeare's company's history at this time. So it just took a very long time to do this work. And it was uh, assisted in a way by a new movement called the New Historicism, which flourished in the 80s and 90s uh, under the batter of cultural materialism in the UK, New Historicism in the US. But what that mostly meant was a scholar would go to the British Library or the Folger Shakespeare Library over a weekend, find an anecdote, and then come back and write that up as a paper. And the anecdotal stuff was, was great. You know, Queen Elizabeth saying, I am Richard II, know ye not that. You, you could get 25 papers and a lot of applause at a conference out of finding a line like that. But it wasn't enough for me. I really needed a a much broader canvas on which to situate these plays. And of course, you know, you, you talk about how much you learned from from reading about fifteen ninety nine and the historical and political context. But but the plays you knew really really well already. The close reading of the plays in the context of of what you have found out about the the context is is just so fascinating. Let's look at. Hamlet, because you devote the the last part of the book, um, two or three chapters, to a very close reading of the play through through the lens of the the, the soliloquy and the essays that Shakespeare uh, would have been um, 
informed by. Talk us through that because I think it really does show us something completely new about a play that is so familiar to us. Sure. When Shakespeare came to London, there was a play called Hamlet on the boards and we hear traces of it uh, as late as 1596 when the play is being performed and this play is now lost. They call it the Ur-Hamlet or earlier Hamlet. And you can imagine Shakespeare as a young actor watching this play. Maybe he's standing as a messenger in his first role and we don't know, thinking, I can do something with this. This play is stale. It's past sell-by date. Why don't I put into Hamlet's mouth soliloquies, long speeches, in which he reveals what he's thinking and how he's thinking. And you can start to see Shakespeare, who didn't really like creating plots. He liked doing gut renovations on somebody else's story that needed fixing up. And he had a brilliant facility for how to transform a work that had been popular and make it ever more so. And uh, it, it's it's extraordinary what he does. And in the late uh, uh, years of the 16th century, first Montaigne in, in France, and then some English writers like Cornwallis was starting to experiment with a form called the, the personal essay, which every university student now knows how to how to write in his or her sleep. But in, in those days was a novel and groundbreaking form. And Shakespeare lifts that and infuses those soliloquies and, and makes them into something no one had ever written or heard before. So that for me was extremely exciting. And, and I have to say, remains exciting. I, I spent an afternoon earlier this week with uh, a terrific actor who is about to play Hamlet, uh, and it'll be up this summer in the Delacroix Theater in Central Park. And we just worked through the rogue and peasant slaves soliloquy again and again for an afternoon. These speeches are extraordinary and remain alive and remain the kind of Everest that actors love to climb. I'm impressed that the actor came to you for this kind of work. Well, I um, one of the, the great benefits of having won this prize in 2006 was theater companies, the Royal Shakespeare Company, uh, and the uh, especially the Public Theater in New York realized it would be handy to have uh, somebody who knew something about the language of this play who can't act, has, as you can hear, a thick Brooklyn accent, and has no interest in directing uh, to help that kind of scholar in the room. All what I've learned from working with actors has been extraordinary. So that too has been one of the great, great benefits of having, maybe the greatest benefit of having uh, won this prize in, in 2006. So, so what, what, tell us a little bit about what you think beyond the obvious literary talent that Shakespeare had that, that uh, allowed him to uh, achieve what he did. I mean, what, what else, what other characteristics did he have that, that made him, I mean, perhaps his hard-working ethic? I mean, you know, tell us a little bit more that you have included in this book that may, will help people who only know him as somebody who was... Um, 
very prolific and brilliant. What was it about him that helped him achieve such renown? One of the things that I was trying to do in writing this book was to knock down a couple of myths. One of the myths was that somebody else wrote Shakespeare, but because that's um, now a belief system more than a fact-based system, that turned out to be very hard to do, and I ended up having to write another book, Contested Will, that tried to knock that myth down. Another myth is the myth we witness when we see a film like Shakespeare in Love, of, of Shakespeare uh, sitting in a room by himself, crumpling up papers, having writer's block, working in a solitary way. So it was very important for me in this book to show that Shakespeare was a collaborative writer. Sometimes he would co-author plays at the beginning and ending of his career, especially with, with other playwrights. Uh, and certainly he was working with others. When, when Henry James came to believe that Shakespeare couldn't have written the plays because he, he quit the theater after The Tempest, what James didn't know and didn't fully understand was Shakespeare's day, unlike his own, consisted of getting up, joining his fellow actors, rehearsing that day's play, because it was not Cats now and forever. They, they changed the play every day because audiences demanded that in uh, Elizabethan times. So they had to run through that day's play, have a meal, come back from two to five, perform that play. And then when the actors went off to drink and carouse and do what actors have done forever, Shakespeare had to go back to wherever he was living and read and write, by often by candlelight, late into the night to prepare the next play. So he was working incredibly long hours, year after year after year, acting and reading and writing. And that, to me, is probably the most impressive thing. And, you know, nowadays, somebody's going to have uh, a couple of lattes or a Red Bull to keep them up. He didn't have that luxury. I, I, I can hear it in your voice how completely enthusiastic you still are. And you said that you, that you learned so much from the research that you did for this book. I mean, did writing this book change you? I began this book as a different writer uh, than the one I was when I finished it. And in a way, the, the shock and surprise of being shortlisted now for this, uh, for this best of award, in a way, has forced me to look back on my career and realize that uh, writing 1599, which took me a lot longer than it took for Shakespeare to write four of his greatest plays, um, <laughs> turned me into a writer, let's just say, uh, as Two Gentlemen of Verona is to Shakespeare, my earliest Shakespeare book, uh, Rival Playwrights, is to Shapiro. It's inferior. I cringe reading a paragraph from it. And 1599 taught me how to write in a way that broke with the academic constraints that had handcuffed me before that, and to really become a writer. And it's the, um, it's the first book that I wrote that I'm truly proud of. And because I wrote it at a point in my life where I had the energy and the drive and the sleeplessness to stay at it, uh, it, it turned out to be the best book I, I've ever written. It's not that I've, I've taken my foot off the gas pedal. I've written some other fine books and they've been well received. But when you discover 
a great topic and you spend 15 years researching and writing it, uh, not every writer in, in the academic world, at least, especially in the UK, where you have to churn out a book every three, four years in order to be evaluated. Uh, I had the great luxury of being a tenured professor in America and writing this book, and I, I tried to do my best with it. Well, the, the two of the judges on this podcast have said that it definitely uh, stands the test of time, and they had both read it when it first came out in, in 2006. And and I, I really just want to thank you for the book because you are clearly steeped in uh, Shakespeare and, and learning, and yet you wear that very lightly in the book. You make it deeply accessible. So I thank you for that. And thank you so much, James Shapiro, for joining me today. And good luck with the Winner of Winners Award. Thanks so much. We'd also like to thank the Blavatnik Family Foundation for its generous support of this podcast. And to find out more about the Bailey Gifford Prize, you can visit the website or follow us on Twitter, if that's the kind of thing you do, at BG Prize. If this episode has piqued your interest in the history of this prize, you can find a 30-minute documentary on our website. And the Winner of Winners Award is going to be announced on the 27th of April at an event held at the National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh. In the meantime, do join me again to hear me speak to the other shortlisted authors about uh, what impact winning the Bailey Gifford Prize has had on their lives and, of course, more details about their books. Until then, bye-bye. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.